You're listening to Advice from Your Advocates, a show where we provide elder law advice to professionals who work with the elderly and their families. Hi, folks. This is a really interesting topic and something that a lot of folks don't actually give enough consideration to, uh, and that is estate planning for second marriages. So one of the things that people think about sometimes is when we're talking about second marriages and they think about prenuptial agreements or those types of things. And that's certainly something to give some consideration to. But it goes a little deeper than that when it comes to second marriages. So it is something that uh, if there is a second marriage, particularly if there's uh, kids on both sides, what they you know sometimes call a blended family, then we really need to do very specific estate planning. Estate planning is, is basically essential at that point, because the default rules are going to cause all kinds of havoc and make sure that things will go wrong. If you don't have an estate plan and if you don't have one that specifically addresses what happens after the death of the first spouse and what happens after the death of the second spouse and what happens in between, then it's almost certainly going to go wrong. It's almost certainly not going to go to where do you expect it to go. So that's why this is such an important topic. So before we get any further, as always, we have a quick disclaimer. And the idea of a disclaimer uh, is that uh, we're going to give you good information here, but this is information only. This should not be used for your specific legal needs. If you have specific questions or specific legal needs, give us a call and we can talk about your specific answers. But don't rely on this for your specific needs when this is general information and not necessarily specific to you. So that's our general disclaimer. And then, of course, we always talk about a little bit about our law firm. So we do have a nationally respected law firm, I, uh, something that I'm very proud of. Uh, we have lots of credentials and, and uh, expertise among our members, uh, about, and particularly our attorneys, and uh, that we actually have a nice following that, uh, that the readers of our local paper has voted us the best law firm or favorite law firm in our area for, what is it, eight years in a row now. So these are uh, nice things. We're also, all three of us are accredited uh, to pursue claims through the Veterans Administration so that we can help our veterans out. So let's get right into the topic. So I mentioned this a minute ago in the introduction is that if you have a blended family, if this is a second marriage, it is crucial, absolutely crucial that we have an estate plan. Because, you know, people don't think about it from the standpoint of looking over the horizon. Okay, we always look for, okay, well, what's going to happen next? Well, you know, let's say that this is a second marriage, but you've been married 30, 40 years. I mean, that's definitely a feasible option. This happens all the time. And so for a second marriage where you've been married for a very long time, a lot of times we don't even really think of it as anything different. But the reality is law treats it differently, okay? The law treats it differently if it's a second marriage and you each have your own separate kids. You may even consider it that his kids are your kids and her kids are your kids and everybody's one big happy family, but that's not how the law treats it. So it's very, very essential that we have a good estate plan and a good estate plan that addresses this specifically. And so we're going to get into some examples here, but one of the things that a lot of folks, you know, say, well, instead of an estate plan, can I just put beneficiary designations on everything? Can I just do a ladybird deed or a quick claim deed? And um, if you heard me speak before, you, you know that I'm not a big fan of that for estate planning. Although certainly it's an acceptable option. It's better than putting your kids' names on assets, 
which we don't want to ever do. We never recommend that you add your kids' names to assets. That's always a bad idea. It almost always causes significant problems, tax problems, gifting problems, Medicaid problems if we ever get sick. All of these issues come up. And so we never want to have you add your kids' names to things, particularly in a situation of a second marriage. And we say, oh, well, I trust that kid. Doesn't matter. We don't know what's going to happen between now and then to them. They might die. They might get dementia. They might get sick. They might get in a car accident. They might get sued. Uh, you know, they might get divorced. All of these things as to why you should never, ever, ever put your kids' names on assets. But some people say, well, isn't it better than if I put beneficiary designations on everything? And the answer is, yes, that's better. It's just not the best. It's better. It's just not the good answer. Okay. The good answer is that we have a plan for today, tomorrow, 20 years from now, 40 years from now. In other words, we have a plan, not necessarily after both of you die, but we have a plan for what happens after the first spouse dies. We have a plan for what happens during that time period where the second spouse is living and the first spouse has died. And we have a plan for what happens after the second spouse dies. And I was speaking to a family not too long ago, and one of the spouses was uh, was very insistent. She says, well, this is the way it's going to work. It, this is what's going to happen. Everything's going to go to my spouse when I die or go to me if my spouse dies. And then they're going to hold it. They're going to be able to live there. And then it's going to go to all of the kids equally. And I said, well, I've looked at your will, and that's not what's going to happen. I've looked at your estate plan. It's not how it's going to happen. And they said, well, that's what I want, though. That's what's going to happen. I said, no, you can you can demand that all you want. You can say that all you want. But unless we have an estate plan, just putting because what they had is they had beneficiary designations. And they said, OK, well, I've listed my spouse on everything as my beneficiary. Well, what that means is you're cutting your kids out. Because if your spouse lives for a month longer than you do, then everything's going to go to your spouse's kids and not to your kids. And your kids are going to be cut out completely if you die first and you leave everything to your spouse without a clear plan in place, without a clear legal plan. And I say a legal plan. I got to make sure I keep repeating myself on that, because sometimes what we have is that people say, well, I have a plan. It's all in my head. This is where my plan is. No, that's not legal. That's not going to work. That will not be enforceable. So when you say, this is what my intentions are, and I trust my kids to do it that way, but that's not what the law says. It doesn't matter if you trust your kids or not. The law is going to say that it goes to the, the children of the surviving spouse. And so beneficiary designations will not work in this case. So let's think about this. What happens after the death of the first spouse? Well, sometimes, and one of the things I often recommend is we say, okay, upon the death, uh, when, when you get remarried and second marriage and it's his kids and her kids, that one of the things that we should give some consideration to is to say, okay, well, maybe we should just keep our assets separate. And I actually think that's a good idea, especially if this is something that you're contemplating now that we say, okay, we're going to keep our assets separate. We still have to have an estate plan in place, but we're going to keep our assets separate. But very few people actually completely do that. They say, well, we're going to buy a house together. If we have a house together, we're going to have an account together because we have to pay for the house. And then uh, next thing you know, they say, well, we've been married for 20 years. I would want my spouse to get my retirement benefits. I would want my spouse to be able to have access to my IRA. So I want it to go to my kids eventually, but I would want if you know my spouse lives longer than me, I, I want to make sure they're taken care of too. We've been married for 20 years, those types of things. So I see this all the time. And this is what happens almost always. I mean, occasionally we'll see families that had kept their assets separate but it's very rare. But even if you have kept your assets separate, we have to have the estate plan address that 
and make it very clear that this was intentional. One of the things that sometimes folks will do is they will get this prenuptial agreement before their second marriage. Now, the thing about that is the prenuptial agreement only works if you abide by it. And so I've had, in fact, I would say the majority of people that came in with the prenuptial agreement, it was not worth the paper that it was written on. And why do I mean that? Well, maybe, first of all, it's very hard to do a prenuptial agreement in Michigan. They're not favored in Michigan. And so uh, you can do it. You absolutely can do it. But typically you have to have two lawyers and, and you have to disclose all the assets. And there's a series of things that you have to do in order to get a prenuptial agreement. And I'm not opposed to that at all. I think uh, that often in a second marriage situation, they're very good. And you say, Bob, well, boy, that's not very romantic. That's not very romantic at all to the extent that you're saying before we get married, we're planning for divorce. No, 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 no. That's not what prenuptial agreements are for in my mind. Of course, that should have some language in there about divorce. But just imagine if you're getting married and you say, well, there's no way I'm ever going to get divorced. That's not why I'm doing a prenuptial agreement. The reason is to say to have a plan in place to say what happens when you die, okay? Because you're going to die. <laughs> All of us are going to die. So you might not get divorced, but you are going to die. We know that's going to happen. And we and the prenuptial agreement can address that. The problem with prenuptial agreements is that uh, the longer people are married, the less they stick to them. And what I mean by that is they start commingling their assets. As soon as you start commingling your assets, your prenuptial agreement is out the window. It doesn't exist anymore. Prenuptial agreements are only for assets that are kept separate. If you combine your assets, forget it, forget it. If you buy a house together, forget it. The, the prenuptial agreement is not going to be successful, okay? And that's what I find most of the time when people come in with prenuptial agreements is, you know, they've been married for a long time, they've been married for 20, 25 years, whatever. They were smart enough to get a prenuptial agreement when they got married, but then as time went by, they're just like, well, we're, you know, we're just a couple now, we're a family, and they stopped, uh, they stopped keeping their assets separate. Well, as soon as you commingle your assets, the prenuptial agreement's really going to be ineffective. So what do we need to do? And the idea is, and, and I'm going to give you the answer right now, but I have a whole other slide on this. We really need to have trusts, uh, a revocable living trust. And so the idea of a revocable living trust is you still have full control over it, but you've laid out the terms as what's going to happen during your lifetime, after your death, during your spouse's lifetime, and after their death. Okay. And we have to be very specific about it. And honestly, a lot of attorneys don't do this particularly well because they're not even looking over the horizon as well as they should be because they're saying, okay, well, we're just going to leave everything to the spouse and the spouse can decide everything. Well, what happens if the spouse gets dementia after that? What if the spouse gets taken advantage of by their caregivers? What if the spouse, you know, one of the kids starts taking advantage and using undue influence on the spouse? We say, oh, we have good kids. They'd never do that to us. Money does some strange things. And, you know, what if the kids got a new spouse, their new spouse, a daughter-in-law, son-in-law, and they were being influenced or they got greedy? You know, money does some strange things to people. So you may say, I have good kids. They would never do that. Boy, I've seen some strange things happen after the death of the parent and uh, people being greedy or maybe just feeling justified and causing all kinds of problems. And so this is particularly a problem in a situation with a blended family or a second marriage with his kids and her kids. So what happens after the death of the first spouse? Well, a lot of times you're, the person that died will have expressed, an, uh, you know, have, will have wanted to say, okay, well, I wouldn't want to kick them out of the house. I want them to be able to stay in the house. 
they would say, I want them to have access to my money. I want them to have access to my IRA. And then I say, okay, great. So that's usually that's the end of it. They're just saying, okay, well, it goes to everything goes to my spouse. We've been married 20 years or 30 years, 40 years, whatever. And they just say everything goes to my spouse. But then we have to ask the next question. Okay. Now imagine that a month after you die, let's say you get in a joint car accident together and you die first. And a month later, your spouse dies. What would you want to have happen to those assets then? And almost everybody says, well, I'd either want it to go to my kids or I want it to be split, split equally between my kids and their kids. And I say, well, that's not what's going to happen. That's not what's going to happen if you're just using beneficiary designations. Because you put a beneficiary designation or you listed your spouse as the primary, as the, as your, uh, the person who receives everything in your will. Everything's going to go to that spouse, even though they only live for another month. And then it's going to go to their heirs, especially if your spouse didn't have a, an estate plan meaning that your kids get cut out completely. And it doesn't matter if they live a month after you or 10 years after you. It is important that we have a plan for that because people don't think through that. In fact, honestly, a lot of lawyers don't think through this. And this is where we really have to do good planning to say, okay, no, I want my spouse to be taken care of. I want them to have whatever they need for my IRA, for my retirement plan. From, I want them to live in the house. I want them to have access to the house and maybe even be able to sell the house and get a smaller house. I want them to have access to all of that. I just want whatever's left over when they didn't use, I want that to go to my kids or I want my kids at least to get half of that or you know whatever that scenario is. And so if you don't have a plan for that, that's not going to happen. And so a will generally is not going to allow that to happen. You're not going to make sure that make make that happen in a will. You definitely can't have that happen with beneficiary designations. So we have to talk about what happens after the death of the second spouse because way too often it ends up everything goes to the children or the heirs of the second spouse. There's a, a famous story of a local attorney who uh, her, her mom died and then he married someone else and then he died. But the odd rest of the story is then his new spouse died, his new wife died. And what happened? Well, she didn't have any kids. So what happened to the family home and all of the assets? It went to the new spouse's mom, who was her heir. It didn't even go to her kids because she didn't have any kids. So Mom and dad's kids got cut out completely and it went to some stranger because that was the next of kin of the new spouse. So mom dies, dad remarries, dad dies, and then new spouse dies. It went to some stranger who wasn't a child. It was just the parent of the new spouse because that was her, her heir. That was her sole heir. So crazy things can happen if we don't have a proper plan in place. And of course, let's talk about this. What if the spouse remarried after the death of the first spouse? So there's so many different examples of this. So let's say even if you've been married a long time and you're older and you say, well, I don't think either of us would ever remarry, you know, it happens. So one of you dies and the other one, you know, at some point they remarry. Well, what's going to happen to those assets? Are those, if, if your spouse, the surviving spouse dies, are any of those assets going to end up going to that new spouse and not to your kids? This is true even if it's not a blended family, even if it's not a second marriage, even if it's a first marriage. But it's something to think about and it's something to plan for. It's, there's, there's ways that we can plan for that in your legal documents and your trust. Typically, it has to be a trust. We can't plan for that in a will. And I keep saying that, and I'm going to get back to that in a second. But why do I say that you, things you can plan for in a trust 
that you can't plan for in a will. It's because a will is a point in time. A will only takes effect when you die. And everything is frozen at that point when you die. The will says, okay, this is when this will takes effect. And everything is treated as if time stops on that. And, and the court is going to then enforce that will based on if time had stopped on this on the second of your death. And so if strange things happen after that, that can't account for it. The will can only take uh, into account what's happened up to the second of your death. Whereas a trust can be planning for generations. Uh, they can be planning for, you know, multiple generations. And so we don't, we can take into account what happens afterwards. We can take into account if the spouse remarries or if there's money left over after the death of the second spouse, or if the spouse gets dementia, or if the spouse is subject to undue influence by one of the kids or a caregiver or somebody taking advantage of the surviving spouse. So these are all really, really important issues. And so there's no surprise here as far as what the solution is, or one of the solutions is, is you probably need a trust. And I say at least one trust. Now, a lot of times in a second marriage, we've been able to come up with a good plan where it's still, we're using one trust, but often a better plan is going to be two trusts where each spouse has their own trust. So I keep saying this word trust or revocable living trust. Let's take a step back and define what that is. A revocable living trust is just a contract. That's all it is. A contract that says, here's what I want to have happen when I'm alive and well with my money and my assets. Here's what I want to have happen when I die with my money and my assets. Here's what I want to have happen after that with my money and my assets. And I forgot one. There's one stage that I forgot that we shouldn't forget, which is here's what I want to have happen if I become incapacitated with my money and my assets. So that's all it is, a contract. A trust is just a contract that says, here's my master plan. Here's what's going to happen. And it can have all kinds of contingencies. Well, if this person dies, then we bring in this person. If this person's not there, then it's going to be this person. I have contingencies for illness, have contingencies for dementia, have contingencies for what if they remarry, have all kinds of contingencies. That's the idea of a contract. People make fun of lawyers all the time because they look at legal documents and they say, well, why does it have to be so many pages? Well, you can imagine with a trust, which is a contract that says, here's what I want to have happen for the, you know, for, for the unknown future. It's got to be pretty detailed, right? It's got to be pretty specific. And we got to think of every possible contingency out there and have a plan for that. So a trust is going to be a lot more pages than a will. And the reason is one of the things that you think about with a trust is you're writing all your own rules. The lawyer's helping you do it, but you're writing all your own rules for every possible future that could happen. Whereas with the will, the state's done most of that for you. The state of Michigan has done most of that for you because the will is subject to all the court rules, all the probate rules, and all the dispute resolution and everything else that's associated with that. So a will can be very, very simple and still be very effective because it's, uh, it incorporates all the rules that the politicians have brought written for you or what the regulators have written for you or the judges have written for you. And so the idea is, you know, do you want that? The second thing is it has its limitations because, like I say, it just kind of uh, there's a point in time where it has to take effect at the date of your death. And we can't really plan for stuff after that. I mean, there there is a thing such, uh, after, uh, such as an after death trust which the technical term for that is called a testamentary trust. And that's a trust that's created by the probate court after your death. Still though, it doesn't have the same flexibility 
as a living trust, one that you write the rules and you've made those determinations. So the reality is a will is not going to be sufficient for these purposes when it's a second marriage. We have to have a trust that's going to say, okay, no matter which one of us dies first, this is the plan. And really, I strongly, strongly recommend that we come up with a joint plan with husband and wife that you both consent to and you both agree to. It is another thing that comes up from time to time where I'll have a, a husband and wife come up in and they'll say, well, when I die, I want it all to go here. And the other one says, well, when I die, I want it all to go here. And yet they have joined assets. Well, now we've got a problem because we can't have the same asset go in two completely different directions. So we got to come up with a solution. And I, you know, I'll consult, I'll consult with you. One of the attorneys here will consult with you and help you come up with the plan. But the idea we've got to either say, okay, you decide 50% and you divide, decide 50% or you just decide, you know, change the percentages or we just come to a joint agreement and we negotiate on that. But we really, I highly, highly recommend that we have a joint agreement where both spouses agree ultimately what's going to happen with everything. Okay. So I, we can help you with that if there's a disagreement between husband and wife or between the, the spouses. But again, a will's not really going to be sufficient for that. And a basic trust is not going to be sufficient. So some people say, oh, okay, we're fine, Bob. Uh, yes, it's a second marriage. Yes, it's his kids and her kids. But we went to a lawyer or even worse, the lawyer came to our house. And I say that because there's a bunch of groups out there that will sell you a really basic form, run of the mill trust that is not pretty much worth the paper that it's written on that will come to your house. And what they're really going to try to do is sell you an annuity or something like that. But they they get in the door by saying they're going to do legal work for you. So that but you have a basic trust. You say, oh, we're all set. We have a trust. Well, I, I would bet what the trust says is when you die, when one of you dies, the, everything goes to the other one. Okay, well, that's the end of it. There's nothing to talk about then because everything goes to the other one. Now we haven't planned for what happens next. And so what we typically would recommend in a situation like this is we say, okay, we're going to say on the death of the first spouse, whichever one it is, everything will stay in the trust and you'll have access to it. And you can spend it. But if you don't spend it, if you don't run out of money, whatever's left up is left, left over is going to go to the people that we've agreed on, either equally to the, all of the kids or 60% to these kids and 40% to these kids, you know, whatever it is that we've agreed upon as to what's going to happen after the death of the second spouse. So we actually keep the assets in the trust and manage it through the trust rather than and and have restrictions or we say okay the surviving spouse can't change the rules of who gets what and then the other thing is ideally we have a provision in there that says the surviving spouse can't actually just take all the assets out of the trust and create a brand new trust so that's where we might consider having a co-trustee upon the death of the first spouse okay by doing that, we can put some provisions in there and, and rules with regard to the co-trustee that say, you know, what the what the surviving spouse is able to do, whether they're able to, you know, change the beneficiary on accounts or whether they're able to uh, take the money out of the trust or, or those types of things. Because the idea is we, we want to have some protections that the surviving spouse doesn't get taken advantage of, doesn't get remarried and give everything to their new spouse you know, all these get dementia and, and get, you know, uh, lose all the money that way because of nursing home costs or things like that. 
So, so those are the ideas. In other words, we really have to think through each stage of life and, and what happens after you die. So then the final thing I wanna talk about is, is planning for care. So this is something that we do in our office. A lot of lawyers don't get involved in this type of thing, but it is really important. And that is that you know many, 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 many of us will have some period of time before we die where we're not able to manage our own affairs anymore, where we're just because of old age or just because of frailty or because of memory loss or dementia or Alzheimer's or those types of things that we need to be dependent on somebody else. Well, particularly of import, there is the cost of the care that you might need. So let's say, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, my daughter will take care of me. Okay, well, great. Hopefully that is, uh, you know, happens. Or they say, oh, I want to just stay in my house forever. Well, okay, but that's very, very expensive if we need 24-hour care. We need to pay somebody else to be there 24 hours a day. And some people say, oh, well, that will never happen to me. You know, they say, oh, I'm going to live in my house. I'm going to die in my house. But reality is, what if you need 24-hour care? You know, the, you, you can put blinders on and say, that'll never happen to me. But I'm going to tell you, it happens to a very large percentage of people. And so if we don't have a plan for that to say, okay, not only, yes, I'd like to stay in my home and here's how we're going to pay for it because we need to probably have a plan for it. Most people don't think that that's actually a, a legal issue, but it is. And the reason it's a legal issue is because there's different government benefits out there that can help you pay for those things, help you pay for a nursing home, pay, help you pay for home care, whether it's veterans benefits or Medicare or Medicaid. And sometimes we have to have our estate plan set up appropriately so that we can access those benefits, or at least that we have the ability to alter our estate plan to protect those assets in a crisis. And so this is particularly important, of course, in the situation of a second marriage, because one person might have entered the marriage with all the money and the other one really had nothing. And it seems very unfair in some cases to say, well, we could have accessed these benefits, uh, but we didn't have our estate plan set up properly. So this is another thing that we really want to think about from the standpoint of a second marriage is saying, okay, this is great. We've got a plan for what's going to happen when I die, when you die. We also probably should have a plan in there that says, well, what happens if one of us gets severe Alzheimer's? What happens if one of us gets dementia? How? What options do we have there? Have we thought through that? Have we talked to a lawyer like Manor Law Group so that we can figure out um, whether we're not we'll qualify for any of these programs? And and not only whether we can, but what what's the process? How we're going to do that? What specific wording or what specific details do we need to have built into our estate plan to make sure that we're not going to lose everything to nursing home costs? So that is my presentation for today. If you have questions, you can always, of course, call us. Our toll-free number is 800-990-6030. So thank you for your time. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit mannerlawgroup.com.